0: When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, "'From the land of Canaan to buy food.' And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, "'You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land.' They said to him, "'No, my lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies.' He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said to him, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, You are spies. By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh, You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies." And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, "'Do this and you will live, for I fear God, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. And bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you to not sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he turned, returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provision for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give donkey his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, "'My money has been put back. "'Here it is in the mouth of my sack.' "'At this their hearts failed them, "'and they turned trembling to one another, saying, "'What is this that God has done to us?' "'When they came to Jacob their father "'in the land of Canaan, "'they told him all that had happened to them, saying, "'This man, the Lord of the land, "'spoke roughly to us "'and took us to be spies of the land. "'But we said to him, "'We are honest men. "'We have never been spies.' We are twelve brothers, sons of our father, one is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land." as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. The word of the Lord.
1: Why this story? This story is drawn out unlike other narratives in the Bible and I've already pointed out to you in weeks past that Joseph is is a bit of an oddity. Uh, He gets more attention, even though he's not a patriarch, in the book of Genesis than any other character in here. Just to tell the story of Joseph and his brothers being reunited and Jacob and his family moving down to Egypt, four long chapters. Why is this drawn out the way that it is, and what does it have for us? Part of understanding that is understanding what drives the book of Genesis as a whole. By the time you get to chapter 12 of Genesis, you realize that God has chosen one person through whom to bless the world, through whom to work his redemptive plans, and that person is, of course, Abraham. From Abraham forward, the story is focused on one particular family that's because God has made promises to that particular family. To Abraham has been promised innumerable descendants, a massive chunk of land, and that through his descendants there will be blessings to the nations. Now immediately after those promises, the story or the narrative moves forward. And where do you find yourself? Right after the promise of innumerable descendants, you find yourself face to face with Sarah's barrenness. The family that's been promised, children upon children, you realize this is an old woman. She's never had a child. The story is stuck. How is it going to move forward? And really from that point forward, the rest of Genesis, the covenant promises face threat after threat. This is one of the things that drives the story forward. You move, you know, God will give Sarah a child, but you move forward to the next generation, and Isaac and Rebekah give birth to Jacob and Esau, And they are at war with each other. Esau wants to kill Jacob for stealing his birthright. How in the world can the covenant promises move forward? How can this family be a blessing to the nations when they can't actually even exist as a family? And the story again moves forward to Jacob. Jacob and his family and suddenly were again threatened. These promises that God will richly bless Abraham's family, they sit in the midst of a terrible famine. This is not an ordinary uh, famine if there is such a thing. But we are very, we very seldomly experience real hunger. This is, this is profound hunger. In the ancient Near East, uh, Egypt would sometimes have a famine. And if they did, they would rely on the land of Canaan for food. And sometimes Canaan would have a famine. And they would rely on the land of Egypt for food. But once in a blue moon, Canaan and Egypt would have a famine at the same time. And this would be cataclysmic. Right? Uh, many thousands of people would starve to death. We have some records of Egypt, of people, groups, and tribes that went through uh, periods like this, and they often resorted to eating their own young. This is the kind of hunger that we're talking about. Uh, the threat of death by starvation to Jacob and his family is very real. Right? You can think of the perhaps images you've seen in magazines or on the TV of some of the worst famines in the world. This would be in that caliber. And so the threat seems to be that the promises to Abraham, as they should be, played out in the life of Jacob cannot move forward because the family is threatened uh, with death, with starvation. And that indeed is the felt need, but it's not necessarily the real need. Amazingly, God's going to use this felt need to drive the family in a certain direction and to deal with what is really at the core which is both the grief in their heart and their inability to be a family, the family of God at this point in time. the story is severed. Joseph finds himself an Egyptian, and the brothers who would kill their own brother have not been reconciled. This isn't a story through whom blessing, this isn't a family through whom blessing can come. And so it's this felt need that drives the real need and it's exposure, which is so often the way God works in our own stories. That we would be driven in a certain direction by some felt need that we think is very profound, only to realize that that is just the surface need. And the real need is deeper and underneath. To see this, I want us to look at uh, the griefs of the three characters. Right? We've got Jacob, we've got the brothers, who will be chiefly represented by Reuben, and we've got uh, Joseph himself. So if we consider those three characters, what are their griefs and how does God deal with them in the midst of the story? As 42, chapter 42 of Genesis opens, uh, Jacob hears that there's food in Egypt, and you can tell the famine is pressing because he says to his kids, what are you doing standing around looking at each other? Get down to Egypt and get some food. And so he sends them uh, to rescue the family by acquiring food in Egypt, but he does not send them all. Notice verse four. Jacob does not send Benjamin because he is afraid some harm may come to him. Now, Benjamin is Joseph's younger brother. They're the only two sons born to Jacob's favorite wife, who is Rachel. Joseph, as we saw at the beginning of Joseph's story, was the favored son. And now Benjamin is the favored son. And interestingly, Jacob is reluctant It doesn't tell us that Jacob is necessarily keeping Benjamin out of all contact sports and shepherding where he might be threatened by animals, but at the notion of a trip with his brothers, he says, you're not going. Which makes the reader at least wonder, did Jacob suspect that there was more going on when Joseph was supposedly eaten by a wild beast? Because he doesn't consider the trip with his brothers safe on the way down to Egypt. He keeps him back. Right? Because his favor, his affection, his love, his grief at losing a son has all been placed now upon Benjamin, and he can't be separated from him. He has made his life about protecting Benjamin, so much so that if you look towards the end of chapter 42, right, the the brothers go down, Joseph meets them, but they don't recognize him. And what ends up happening is he sends the other brothers back to get Benjamin to prove their story is true, but he holds one captive as collateral, and that's Simeon. And when they get back to, uh, to Jacob and say, listen, let us go back down with Benjamin and we can rescue Simeon, Jacob says, no, I'm willing to sacrifice Simeon in order to protect Benjamin. If you look at verse uh, 38 in chapter 42, Even after Reuben offers that his two sons might be killed, if he fails in this task, Jacob says in verse 38, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Jacob knows the loss of his son, which is a profound loss. And in that loss and grief, what has he done? He said, I will protect myself. I will decide, I will determine my future. The greatest, the worst thing that could possibly happen to me is to lose the other son of my most loved wife, so I will ensure his safety, even at the expense of one of my other sons. For Jacob, his fear and his grief turn into a desire to protect and control. Do you sympathize with Jacob? Do you experience a grief or a fear that's upon your heart? And as a result, you think, I can't believe God did that or permitted that to happen. I don't consider him to be very safe. I would rather put my eggs in a basket of my own control. I can't trust God with Benjamin because God took Joseph. And so now I'm going to orchestrate protection for Benjamin in my own strength. And even if that means giving up one of my other sons, Benjamin is my life. See, Jacob, weighed down by this grief, he moves in a direction that is away from Yahweh and toward guaranteeing what he desires to be his future, what he thinks is his salvation, which is the survival of Benjamin. Our second character are Joseph's brothers as a whole, and particularly Reuben. Now, they suffer a different kind of grief. It's the grief of guilt. Almost 20 years have passed since Joseph's original dreams. For 20 years, they've had opportunity to think about their decision to throw their brother into a pit to kill him. Right, the initial intent was to kill Joseph. Only after debate and after the opportunity to make a profit did they decide to sell him into slavery. And as the brothers now find themselves in Egypt, standing before a Joseph they don't recognize, which makes sense in that Joseph was... Uh, removed from their presence as he was a teen and now is an Egyptian and has adopted Egyptian dress. Right? So they don't know who he is, and he's treating them roughly. He speaks roughly to them. He uh, accuses them of being spies. They're getting pretty nervous, and eventually Joseph will uh, uh, say that, I'm going to keep one of you as collateral. The rest of you will have to go back all so that I can see your youngest son. It gets very scary, but notice how the brothers process what is occurring. If you look at 42 verse 21, Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. The brothers understand that they're being punished for uh, the sin that they committed against Joseph. Now, in the Old Testament, you perhaps have uh, a better reason to make that assumption. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They've broken the law. They're now being held accountable. One of the things I think we have to note as we consider them is that we often continue to look at God in this light. Even after the resurrection of Christ, we tend to see God as perhaps a punishing God. I'm suffering. Bad things are happening to me. Why are they happening? I must have done something wrong. I'm being punished for something. And that's not the way that Scripture describes God and uh, His discipline. When He would approach us to... uh, to steer us in the right direction. The author of Hebrews actually describes God as being a loving father who disciplines us for, us for our good. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews 12, verse 7 and following. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. to enter into discipline, to enter into suffering. Now, your suffering may not be discipline. It may not be the result of something that you have done, but it could be. And if it is, don't run away from it. Don't try to say, I will fix this in my own right, which is what the brothers are going to do. But particularly for you, young people and uh, even children, when your parents discipline you, it is out of love. But in the moment of discipline, it feels awful. And you get angry at them and have contempt for them. And in your contempt for them, you pull away from them. And that's the most foolish decision because they desire your good. And likewise, with our Heavenly Father, what does He desire? Your holiness and that He would cultivate you in, the, in you the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And you can't do that if in the midst of discipline, you pull away from Him and decide to move in your own direction which is really what we see with Reuben. Reuben is the oldest and he's a classic firstborn because uh, you can see the contempt that he has for himself and the contempt that he expresses for his brothers, right? He says in verse 22, uh, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. All of a sudden, Reuben hates his brothers because they did not Listen to him, which there's a good bit of self-contempt in that, which is, I really also hate myself because I failed to prevent this from happening. I look back and I could have done more. I could have acted uh, more strongly and prevented you from doing this to Joseph. And so by the time they come back from Egypt, you see Reuben there at the end saying, listen, this is a bad situation. We didn't mean to get Benjamin involved. Jacob says, but you did. And this, you're right, this is a very bad situation. You're not going back. And Reuben, what does Reuben say? Right? The first one, I will make this right. I will fix this. If I fail in this task, you may kill my two sons. You're right? seeing no appeal to Yahweh. No, no crying out. We're in a bad place. We could really use some help here. How should we move forward? Instead, Reuben just presumes, I will go down and make this right and get Simeon out and make sure Benjamin comes back. And if not, you can do this to me. I, it's on my shoulders. What Reuben, in all of his guilt, right, seeks to atone for himself. I will, I will atone for what I've done wrong by doing better. Right? And some of you know that story. Because you live most of your life by atoning for your own guilt and your own shame by saying, now I will do better. I will make myself stronger and faster and wiser and perform with greater skill. You do not have the power or the strength or the wisdom to atone for your guilt. But is there a grief of guilt in your heart? Is there sin that weighs on you that you have engaged in and that you regret and that you seek to be better and that's how I will fix it, rather than actually running with that guilt to Jesus. Our third character is Joseph himself. Joseph suffers the grief of lost identity. All right, let's not underestimate what Joseph has lost. For almost 20 years, he's been removed from his land. He's been a slave. He's been in prison. Right? He's been separated from his family. And now grows up in a completely different culture. You can say, well, Joseph ends up being powerful. Yeah, but he's really lost everything in order to experience the power that he currently has. Undoubtedly, Joseph would say that his story has not gone the way that he would have intended. And his brothers show up, and Joseph, we know as the reader, recognizes the brothers And yet he will not disclose his identity to them. But what is particularly interesting is verse 8 tells us his brothers show up. Joseph is this person of supreme power in Egypt. And what do the brothers do? They bow. And verse 8 says Joseph immediately remembers the dreams that he had 20 years ago. He realizes that God is bringing to fulfillment the glimpses of the future that he gave so long ago. But he does not say, oh, this must be God's doing. He continues to keep himself hidden, and he must be wrestling with the question, are my brothers safe? They hated me once enough to throw me into a pit to die. Should I disclose myself to them again? What if upon realizing who I am, they say, oh, we didn't know you were Joseph. We're going to go find food somewhere else. We really don't want you back in the family. There's opportunity to be wounded again in a significant way. And so Joseph will start this uh, rather remarkable scheme in which you can see him wrestling with, do I I disclose myself? Numerous times he'll have to excuse himself to weep because he's so moved upon meeting his brothers and then upon meeting Benjamin and wrestling with what he should do. But could we possibly say that there is also not the temptation for revenge? Imagine that you were thrown by your siblings into a pit to die. And that even though they could hear you crying and pleading for help, begging for your life, they turned their backs on you and your life went down a really lousy road for 20 years. And suddenly, they're back in front of you, and you're the most powerful guy in the room. You tell me there is not a temptation to give them a little taste of their own medicine, right? Which is actually what happens. The first thing Joseph does is throw them in prison. And they had, from one perspective, to feel a little good, right? Well, you threw me in a pit? All right, now, here you go. You're in prison. And initially, he's going to keep all of them and only send one brother back. But after he sleeps on it for three days, he says, actually, I'm going to let all of you go back and just keep one brother as collateral. So all of this is going on in the midst of Joseph, but you see him as he wrestles with how and when to disclose himself to his brothers. Is this safe? Can they be trusted now? Yes, Yahweh seems to be making clear that his promises are being fulfilled and that the dreams, I recognize it, they just all bowed to me. But... Do I really trust Yahweh to play out this story in a way that protects me? And so Joseph himself controls the situation, seeks to make it go in a certain direction so that he can test and weigh the intentions and hearts of his brothers prior to actually disclosing himself. So we have three characters and we have three griefs. Jacob grieves a lost son. The brothers grieve their guilt joseph grieves lost identity and in all three cases you see a particular endeavor in self-reliance jacob says in my grief i know what i will do i will protect benjamin the brothers say in our grief i know what we will do we will atone for our own sin joseph says in my grief i know what i'll do i'll make sure that this situation is safe before i proceed gosh can you blame him for all the unsafety that he had been made to go through And yet, in all these ways, right, the self-reliance pulls them away from actually experiencing God in the midst of this pain. And Kidner, I mentioned it other week, says there's this, in the story of Joseph, there's alternating heat and cold. There's alternating sunlight and frost. And it is this alternating sunlight and frost in each of the characters that ultimately breaks their hearts and renders them ready to see the fulfillment of God's promises. What is your grief? What weighs on your heart? And how do you handle that grief? Does it produce fear and a desire to protect or a desire to control or a desire to ensure safety? And as you act out of those desires, does that actually bring you near to God or move you away from him? The uh, the three griefs, griefs, excuse me, and uh, because it's God's story with three joys, and you can see them in Genesis 45. The story is much too long for us to print in the worship guide or to read in one sitting. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 45. And consider Jacob's grief, and then 45 verses 27 through 28. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The grief of Joseph or Jacob becomes joy that Joseph is alive. And for the brothers, you have 45 verses 14 and 15. After Joseph has finally revealed himself, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. The grief of guilt is atoned for in the forgiveness of the brother and the reuniting of the family. And for Joseph himself, this loss of identity, this terrible turn of story, if you look at verse 4 in chapter 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors so it was not you who sent me here but God in the loss of Joseph's identity he recognizes that while the brothers meant it for evil God meant it for good and because it's God's purposes and he redeems it he can love his brothers and be reunited to them and so we see again the change that has come and resulted in joy as God brings the story to its proper conclusion that Jacob is a, is a changed man and that he ultimately will be willing to give up Benjamin in the second return to Egypt. And the brothers are changed and that they are reunited and forgiven. And Joseph has changed is changed as that he entrusts himself to the relationship of his brothers again. The griefs have become joys under God's providential hand. So again, I would ask you, what grief is in your heart? There are many, I'm sure, but how do you handle that grief? I asked you at the beginning of this sermon, why this story? Why this incredibly long narrative about Joseph being reunited and the family coming back together? from one perspective, I think it is a gift to us because you walk by faith. You have grief because this world doesn't always go the way that we would like it to. You believe in a promise that Jesus will ultimately wipe away every tear, but you won't experience the fulfillment of that promise this side of glory. And so there is a question, will that ending be true? Will God really bring it to its proper conclusion? What a gift to be able to look back on a story and see that God did just that. That in the midst of the story, the covenant promises seem lost and the family seems divided beyond repair. But in the end, God brings everyone together and he turns each of the characters' grief into joy. And so it's a testimony of what ultimately will happen in Christ. It's also an encouragement to us in that it invites us to process our truest grief and to know the joy of reconciliation. For any grief that you may have thought of, right, what is the greatest grief in the center of your heart? Well, I would put forward to you that it is this it's bound up really in two decisions. One is the covenant, or is the decision that we all made in Adam to believe that God was a liar. And as that story unfolds, that we decide to believe that God is a liar and withholds blessing from us, that cultivates hatred in our hearts to the extent that we would prefer to kill him than to meet him. And the greatest grief in any human's heart, whether they know it or not, is that In their old self they swung the hammer to crucify Jesus to the same extent that the brothers throw Joseph into the pit to give him up you were happy to throw Jesus into a pit to give him up with the presumption with the hope that by killing God you might become God and it's a ridiculous proposition but it's one that we've all participated in if that's your greatest grief which I'm holding out to you that it is then your greatest joy is to realize that that brother who was thrown into a pit would say just what Joseph says. You have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And to come back to him, to run to him with that grief, and to know that he forgives you, is to fall on his neck and weep, and to realize that he desires nothing more than to fall on your neck and to weep as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love which is beyond measure. We thank you that though we would throw you into the pit, you would recognize the good and providential hand of God and you would you would go to Egypt that we might be redeemed, that we might be saved. So we praise you this day and ask that you would forgive us for the ways in which in our grief we continue to think you are a liar and continue to handle life as if we were sovereignly in control of what will happen tomorrow. Instead, would you wake us up? Would you dispense your spirit in such a way that we might run to you with our grief and to cry and to be angry and to be frustrated, but to know that it uh, it is your business to turn our grief into joy. And we thank you that you are so good at it. We pray that you would receive our praises and song and delight in them. We ask it in your name. Amen.